This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. Welcome to Tanjo A, Yenzo A session. Time for wholehearted sitting and thorough investigation of Dogen Zenji's essay, Shobogenzo Zamai, oh Zamai. The Samadhi that is the king of Samadhis, sovereign of Samadhis, Samadhi. In Sanskrit, in the Pradnya Paramita Sutras, it's Samadhi Raja Samadhi. So it seems fitting to start this discussion to talk a little bit about Samadhi this ancient Sanskrit term that's so prominent in the Buddha's teaching and is the theme of this essay and the theme of our zazen. Samadhi. It may be that Shakyamuni Buddha coined this term. I don't think anybody's found any uh, older versions when I was poking around the internet. There is the term Samadhi in some of the Upanishads, but only in the Upanishads that came after Buddha's life. So it may be before Buddha, but this term samadhi is often translated as concentration. But the Buddha himself in the in the old suttas defined this term samadhi as chitta Ekagrata in Sanskrit, or Chitta Ekagata in Pali. Chitta is mind, and Ekagrata is one pointedness, 
Eka is one. And Grata is something like point. So the Buddha himself said this one pointedness of mind is called samadhi. It's kind of like Buddha's definition. And sometimes it's interpreted as the one pointedness of mind and its object. There's this word object for like a focus in meditation. So if the mind is attending to the breath, the common meditation object, the experience and sensation of breathing, when the mind and this object, this experience of breathing, become one-pointed, become like one point. The mind and the experience of breathing become one. That's one-pointedness of mind and object in meditation. So some interpret it literally as one-pointedness of mind you could say in parentheses, and the object being one point. And some translator interpret this um, ekegrata and samadhi as unification of mind. These are English words that have slightly different feeling, I think. One point in this seems to be uh, implying that you focus on this um, on this one object becomes one pointed at this specific location and time and place called the sensation of breathing in the abdomen. In Zen, when following the breath as an object, the tradition is generally follow it in the lower abdomen, whereas Theravada tradition of Southeast Asia tends to follow the breath at the nose tip, where the cool air enters the nostrils. So they're kind of different. But, um, but they both have this specific location, generally when following the breath as a meditation object. It's kind of specific. So this, so this uh, interpretation of ekagrata as uh, one-pointedness fits nicely with this type of meditation. This single point of attention, the breath in the abdomen or the nose tip and the mind, which is not really located, fuse into this one point. Whereas um, unification of mind 
doesn't necessarily have to have this like single pointed focus. It's more like a, our entire experience and the experiencing of it is, a, is unified in one vast field. See how that sounds um, a little different? Unification of mind doesn't necessarily have to have a, a single pointed, located um, focal point, like the breath and the abdomen. So exclusive focus on a single point versus a kind of broader awareness that it is unified. In both cases, we're talking about um, one reality. We might say non-dual is another way of talking about this eka, one. And uh, then that, that one-pointedness is a, could say a state of concentration or um, a realm of just unification. Concentration, I feel like in English also has the connotation of um, single-pointed, um, exclusive focus on a single point. Whereas undistracted, unified mind uh, could be a, could be very spacious and not so single pointed and yet non-dual unity. Both of these are interpretations and or types of samadhi. In Chinese, when they translate the Sanskrit term samadhi into Chinese and Japanese, they either transliterate it, just get this, try to get the sound of the Sanskrit, which is this essay, Zamai. Zamai has particular um, Chinese characters, don't have the meaning of samadhi, but it's, they're trying to get the sound of samadhi, zamai. Whenever they translate, uh, transliterate Sanskrit into Chinese, it's never that accurate. But that's what zamai is, transliteration of Sanskrit. And that's a popular, common way of using this term in China and Japan from ancient times, but sometimes they also translate the term samadhi into one character that has the meaning of samadhi. And that character is uh, in Chinese din or uh, Japanese jo. And that means like established or to establish, or to determine or to fix or to settle. So that is, that is the meaning of samadhi also. 
to establish or established. It's a, it's a realm of mind that's established, determined, fixed, settled. Even um, certain is a, is a translation of this Chinese character. It's used not just for the term samadhi, it's just um, a standard Chinese term. So fixing the mind, a, a um, unified, one-pointed way. This is the meaning of, uh, of samadhi. And in the Buddha's teaching, all throughout the early foundational teachings, the Buddha um, described the path of practice as including samadhi. Maybe the most simple form is that the Buddha would use over and over again for like, the entire, uh, entire path of practice. The whole path to complete awakening is summarized as having these three aspects, shila, samadhi, and pradnya. And what we're talking about awakening, the issue for the Buddha was always, um, how do we relieve suffering? All humans and all sentient beings are caught up in discontent. And uh, it's good, I think, to always remember at the beginning of uh, any Dharma discussions, that's the bottom line. That's the whole point of uh, Buddha Dharma, is to relieve discontent. And complete perfect awakening, we could say, is just the complete perfect cessation of discontent for oneself and then having realized this uh, to whatever extent we realized it, we, we naturally spread it to others in every meeting with others. If we're totally, if we feel like, I just want everybody else to be free from suffering, but I am totally caught up in it myself. It's not a problem. But we, maybe it can't quite work that way. Somewhat it maybe can, but they kind of go together. We want others to be free. We have to understand what suffering is, what discontent is, and how it can come to an end. So the entire path of practice in the early Buddhist teachings of relieving discontent for everyone is summed up in these three, shila, samadhi, and pratnya. Shila is virtue, ethical conduct, taking care of our, our relationships with each other and the world in a harmless and beneficial way. That's the, even said to be the beginning point often uh, based on our 
kindness and uh, harmlessness. We settle down and we don't regret so much. And uh, based on this non-regret and subtleness and feeling like pretty okay, based on this, we develop samadhi. That's the early model. Based on virtue, uh, this unification of mind naturally develops. Because if we're just running around causing lots of trouble and, and then when we sit down for zazen, we're probably going to start thinking about, oh, I really shouldn't have said that to that person. And I really regret having done that. And it's, it turns up our mind. It's hard to settle. But I think that's an interesting um, way it's taught. As the reason that, that, uh, that virtuous conduct is the basis or samadhi, very practical, no, no magical, um, metaphysical uh, ideas needed here. If we're practicing virtue, we don't get so um, caught up in regretting the past and worrying about how we're going to um, work it out in the future. Simpler, makes our life simpler. In practice of virtue and samadhi is a kind of simplicity. And then based on samadhi in this in the Buddha's teaching over and over again. Based on samadhi, one can develop prajna or understanding or wisdom or realization. It's hard to deeply understand the way things are um, if the mind is not very still and unified. We just start thinking too much and just get scattered. We need to settle into this unified mind of presence, uh, letting go of past and future obsessions. And then in such a space, we can open to the way things are, prajna. So, so in this version of this three-part path to awakening, samadhi is one-third of it. And sometimes this, this three-part path gets expanded into the eightfold path, which is the same principle, it just a little more detail. And the order kind of changes around a little bit, but it's kind of implying it doesn't necessarily have to follow any particular order. These are all kind of aspects of the path that go together. In the Eightfold Path, uh, it begins with right view and it culminates in right samadhi. The eighth factor of the Eightfold Path is this right or correct or appropriate um, unification of mind that is samadhi. Again, not necessarily like that's the end point of the path, but that's the way the Buddha arranged it in the Eightfold Path.
interestingly, um, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which came after the Buddha, no one is quite sure when, but may, some people say maybe around the fifth century. And greatly influenced by Buddha's teaching, that Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, maybe the heart of it is, um, is these eight limbs of yoga, Ashtanga yoga. And uh, the eighth limb of, of this eight limb yoga, which has to realization or awakening in, this, in the Samadhya yoga system, uh, the eighth limb is called Samadhi. Is it coincidence that the eighth aspect of the Eightfold Path is Samadhi and the Eighth Limb, the culmination of the Eight Limb Yoga is also Samadhi? Maybe it's coincidence, maybe not. So uh, interesting how in, in these systems, Samadhi is very important, like kind of culmination. We also have this term that Buddha used, jhana, very similar to samadhi. Sometimes they're almost used interchangeably. Jhana in Pali or dhyana, Sanskrit, chana in Chinese, zen in Japanese. People probably have heard that before. Zen is a Again, a kind of a clunky transliteration of dhyana. It also means like concentration or sometimes absorption. And uh, in the early Buddhist teachings, it's it's uh, these kind of levels, deepening levels of concentration for dhyanas, and then there's these another four kind of formless dhyanas, so eight total. And these are kind of specific, um, deeply concentrated or one-pointed states of concentration. Even though Zen, our Zen tradition, isn't actually so related to this, to this list of eight um, levels of absorption in the Theravada tradition. The, what we call the Zen tradition basically never talks, almost never talks about these four or eight levels of absorption. It kind of took on a new meaning. I think more like Samadhi, just the general unification of mind. I think when we talk about these four or eight dhyanas, they fit more into this interpretation of samadhi as single pointedness in order to um, reach these jhanas and develop them and, and uh, progress through them. It's generally taught that one is, is narrowly, specifically, exclusively focused on a single point 
like a breath of the nose tip. Whereas what we call the Zen tradition tends to not talk that way so much. Now this is a topic we could we can explore throughout this week. Um, if you'd like, I think it's an interesting one. These two kind of different but related interpretations of samadhi, a single point of focus on a um, single exclusive object in order to unify the mind in one pointedness with that object, or a kind of broader unification of mind with all of experience, kind of an all-inclusive awareness. I think it's good to keep, keep this in mind and keep exploring the difference between these two types of meditation. And uh, although we might find both of them in the, in the Zen tradition, it looks to me like kind of classic Zen when it arose in China and um, Dogen Zen in Japan uh, tends to emphasize in its teachings the more this unification of mind, this broader, all-inclusive kind of awareness, and um, less the single-pointed focus. I'm talking classical Zen of the, of the Chinese and Japanese ancestors, at least through the Keizan. A modern Zen, even in Japan, as well as America, I think maybe veers a little bit back towards this single-pointed focus on, it, on an object like the breath. Probably everybody here has about following the breath as a kind of basic Zazen instruction. It's not something new in America. This is taught also in modern Japan. I'm not sure when it started because, uh, I mean, there's a lot of Zen records, right, in China and Japan. In the Chinese Buddhist canon, there's like more Zen texts than any other um, school of Buddhism. And uh, you know, thousands and thousands of pages. I mean, I haven't looked at it all, but um, just looking at, at Dogen Zenji's Shogogen, though, is about a thousand pages, and his extensive record is also about a thousand pages in English and Japanese. And um, there's a, quite a bit about Zazen, but in these, let's say 2000 pages or so, there's um, no mention of following the breath. There's one actually that I know of. There's one in the extensive record where Dogen talks about following the breath as, as a practice, but he kind of critiques the early, early model of, of um, Buddha's teaching of following the breath, and he turns it into more of a Zen teaching. He's saying, um, we follow the breath by just seeing how the breath comes from nowhere and enters, and then as the breath exited, exits, it leaves into nowhere. That's in breath meditation um, in a couple sentences in 2,000 pages. I don't want to critique this teaching. I just think it's interesting historically to see that maybe it was talked about in the um, 
in, you know, um, oral transmission, uh, but not written down. Maybe because it was like, well, it's not so interesting to write about this in these Zen records. We want to write more poetically. But um, so it's hard to know for sure. But if we want um, breath following instructions for Dogen, besides this one uh, example, um, there aren't any. So it might be kind of a modern um, movement in Japan and America. And maybe there's some difference between Soto and Rinzai Zen, or they influence each other. But um, I think in Rinzai Zen, actually Hakuin Zenji talks a little bit about, um, I think, following the breath, but only a, as a kind of almost like a medical healing, healing practice, as I recall when he mentions it. He was really sick, like physically sick at one point. He learned this kind of breathing practice to kind of like really settle the chi. And so he teaches it that way, but not so much as, uh, as a um, path to awakening, as I, as I recall. So it's interesting. I think many people nowadays follow the breast and maybe. Um, are working on developing samadhi and this single pointedness um, aspect. And it's good um, for developing single pointedness uh, of mind. It's good for reining in the mind that um, is so prone to looking for distractions in the past and in the future. The breath is always present and uh, it's simple and it's specific. That's, an, I think, another great advantage of following the breath is, um, well, I'm not quite sure what the breath is. No, we know basically what the breath is. It's a sensation. Basically, it's a physical sensation that we're attending to, a bodily movement sensation. And it's, we can find it. We can almost always find it. Sometimes it gets very slight, really subtle, hardly anything at all. It's still we can find it. Whereas if we're just being present, for example, um, it's it's murkier territory. Potentially, we can um, be actually daydreaming about past and future, and like, well, I'm just sitting, right? Yeah, this, this practice called just sitting. And uh, I think the danger of that is it becomes just spacing out. Just letting the mind kind of wander where it will, which I don't think is the meaning of shikantaza. So in that sense, breath is good, especially good for beginning zaza. I think following the breath is, uh, is a really great way to develop it. If you just hear from the very beginning, like some people do, like someone told me recently, the very first Zazen instruction they got was, was um, well, just sit and don't do anything. I think that's an amazing practice, but I think it's very advanced. And it, it's not the best 
instruction to give to um, somebody just coming to meditation practice. <laughs> we need a little more specific. And the following the breath is a good one. But, um, but it's good to know that it's definitely not the only way to meditate. Here we have a Dogen's essay on meditation and, and um, of course it doesn't mention the breath at all. It does mention the posture. In fact, this essay is, is that's a main theme, one of the main themes. I think of this particular Zamai or Zamai, this focus on posture. So we'll definitely explore that. Uh, a little bit more on samadhi, moving in from, from these early Indian um, teachings of the, into the realm of Zen, early Zen in China. We have the platform, the sutra of the sixth ancestor, one of the great classics kind of defining the Zen tradition in China, of which all schools of Zen up to the present um, branch forth from the sixth ancestor. And so all honor this, all schools of Zen honor this platform sutra of the sixth ancestor. This is kind of like we're getting the, the new fresh style of Zen, which is using, of course, using early Buddha's teachings and based on them, but turning them in fresh new ways. So in the Platform Sutra, Hui Nung, the sixth ancestor, talks about samadhi in this way. He says, good friends, my dharma, you could say in parentheses, Zen. Takes samadhi and prajna as its basis. Remembering that Shakyamuni Buddha also took shila, samadhi, and prajna as the basis and the entire path to awakening. Here, um, six ancestors is not mentioning shila or virtue. He does mention it elsewhere in the Platform Sutra. But he's, I think, really looking at the meditation practice per se here. So he's focusing on samadhi and prajna, this central teaching of the Buddha, and saying, my dharma, this new Zen movement, takes samadhi and prajna as its basis. But here's where it starts to get different from the Buddha. Six ancestors says, never under any circumstances, say mistakenly that samadhi and prajna are different. Very strict here. Never under any circumstances say that these are two different practices. I think in the early teachings of the Buddha, they were actually taught as two different practices. And there's commentaries that explain based on developing this unification of mind, this presence, 
we um, can realize the nature of reality, which is prajna. One kind of leads to the other. But here the six ancestors are saying, don't ever say that these are different, samadhi and prajna. By the way, I see presence here. That, that's another um, term we might try on. I've been sort of trying on. It's not a literal translation of samadhi, but I like it. The kind of like um, meaning of samadhi, presence. Presence means we're not caught up in the past and future. And it's a, it's a unified mind, mind of presence. Can consider that. And in this presence, we can then start to understand how things are. But here, the six ancestors says presence and understanding, samadhi and prajna, are not two. He says they are they are a unity. They are not two, they're non-dual. goes on to say, to um, comment on what he means here. Samadhi itself is the essence of prajna. Prajna itself is the function of samadhi. In Chinese Buddhism, these terms became very popular. This, this kind of pair uh, of essence and function. Essence is kind of like sometimes find emptiness or the ultimate truth. It's just the unchanging way things are. And function is the way that it expresses itself in the world, like the relative truth of appearances coming and going. That's one way of looking at essence and function. So here, um, and the non-dual essence and function are two aspects of one reality. So here, the six ancestors is samadhi, presence, unified mind, is the essence of prajna, understanding, realization. Prajna, understanding, is the function of samadhi presence, unification. He says, do not say that samadhi gives rise to prajna or that prajna gives rise to samadhi or that samadhi and prajna are different. This is a dualistic view. He goes on, good friends, how are samadhi and prajna alike? The same. They are like a lamp and it's light. If there's a lamp, then there's light. The lamp, which is like samadhi, is the essence of the light shines forth from it. If there is a lamp, there's light. 
The lamp samadhi is the essence of the light. The light prajna is the function of the lamp. So they have two names, essentially they're non-dual. So this may be the beginning of this um, new way of looking at samadhi, that it's not like some kind of mechanical practice or kind of practice method that we use to gradually develop understanding. It's more that uh, it's the actual essence of understanding. The Buddha didn't talk that way, even though samadhi is the eighth of the eightfold path. Maybe there's some implications there, but usually it's not taught that way uh, in the early teachings. We might say, well, how is it that this samadhi is um, the essence of realization of wisdom, of understanding of reality? Like the lamp that shines forth as the light of understanding. It may be that, um, that the sixth ancestor here is using this kind of definition of samadhi, that it's the unification of mind and object, that it's the non-duality of mind and object, that it's the unified, all-encompassing, all-inclusive, all-embracing presence of awareness. It's not just a like a meditation practice or method, but that's reality. Because prajna, or the understanding of reality, is sometimes described as non-duality. So maybe it was understood earlier on that the non-duality of subject and object in samadhi implies a kind of reality, or that that is a kind of um, nature of reality, where there's this one unity of reality with no separation. And maybe that that was kind of understood or implied in the early teachings, but it looks to me like this Six Ancestors Platform Sutra is the first to really make this explicit and, and define the style of Zen in this way and to define the practice of Samadhi in Zen in this new way. That um, if you have this unified mind, don't go looking for some understanding of reality elsewhere, this is it. And it, and the essence of this unified mind of samadhi shines forth as the understanding of non-duality. Understanding here, we could say, is understanding the implications of non-duality, that um, ultimately, from the point of view of samadhi, uh, the world is not separate from ourselves, 
and we are not separate from the other. This kind of broader non-duality is there right in the practice of samadhi. And then we might say, what about when we're not in samadhi? Then there's teachings of we can practice it as a um, you know sitting cross-legged on the cushion to get in touch with it. Or could it be that actually samadhi is always present, but we're just not in touch with it? Or it's not developed as fully as it could be when we actually sit still and intentionally let go of past and future thinking and so on. Alan might say, that seems kind of far-fetched to say that samadhi is always present. But uh, interestingly, in some traditions of, of early Buddhist Abhidharma, as I understand it, like Theravada Abhidharma, I think that they, they say that um, there's these universal factors of every moment of consciousness and different traditions have slightly different lists. I think that in the Theravada tradition, they'd say one of the universal factors of every moment of consciousness is samadhi. And they're here, they're not talking about the Buddha, it's not talking about this as, um, as this like super concentrated um, realm of meditation. Here, it's just using the same term samadhi as the one pointedness of mind and object. Like there's a focus of where the mind meets objects. Um, and this, uh, this meeting of mind and objects is present in every moment of consciousness. It's a, almost like a different meaning, slight, it's a different implication of samadhi. It's a different um, aspect of samadhi, the samadhi that's present in every moment of consciousness. And then it's kind of an undeveloped samadhi then we can develop that one-pointedness or unification of mind in meditation and realize how that is so. But that's a nice kind of teaching from Abhidharma tradition that um, could have some implications for this understanding that uh, maybe this unity, if we're saying it's the reality of all things all the time, Maybe that's always the case in every moment of everyone's consciousness, but it's not developed or um, realized. So that's some background on samadhi in the early tradition, how important it is for Shakyamuni Buddha and how it starts to be reinterpreted or understood in a broader way in Zen tradition, starting with the sixth ancestor. So um, maybe we can talk here and see if there's anything you want to bring up 
about these, these teachings so far. Um, so for discussion, uh, it looks like there is there a hand, hand in, the, in the, uh, yeah, and the, at least my screen has um, for reactions. You can um, have a raise hand button. Does everybody have that possibility? Let's try to use that. Yeah, let's try to use that button and. Um, if you don't have that raise hand, you can just raise your hand on the screen. If you'd like to um, clarify anything about this so far, we can also keep going ahead. Yuki, Karen. You're muting. Still muted. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Good morning. I, I want to say, first of all, I was really happy that you brought Patanjali into this because I spent quite a bit of time with him. Um, and I guess I want to ask you about maybe about how it is for you or how it is in a more general way to find words to articulate this kind of, um, this kind of experience, I think especially, and, and stay in touch with, especially maybe the, the non-dual aspect of it. Language doesn't seem to come for me very well when I contemplate that. So I wanted to ask you about, about that. Yes. Uh, language gets tricky in in, uh, in this realm because we know that words never completely reach the meaning of uh, these realms of experience that we're talking about in meditation and so on. And yet, we have the example of the Buddha, who um, actually, right, this, the story is that the Buddha upon his awakening, um, just after his awakening, thought to himself, um, wow, this is <laughs> it. It's so profound. I will never, ever be able to like, um, explain this to anybody. So I'm not even going to try. <laughs> it would just be like exhausting to even attempt. And so he continued sitting under the tree, right? And the, um, the devas who were, you know, watching the uh, events unfold um, came and said, we have a Buddha in like eons in this world system. Finally, we have one. We just realized Buddhahood. And um, this world is in the total mess and, and, uh, and, and so much suffering. Um, I know, I know it's, hard to talk about these things, but please, won't you try? And uh, the Davis kept pleading with Shakyamuni until he finally said, well, I don't think it's gonna work, but, <laughs> but um, if you really want to, I'll try. And 
maybe even not many people are going to get this, but I did have these yogi friends who are, um, who are uh, dwelling down the long road, <laughs> the long dusty road of India. I'll go, um, I'll go find them and maybe they can understand. And of course they did. And the rest is history up to this very Zoom meeting. Um, conveyed through words. Right? And as I mentioned, right, the, the Zen tradition is the, the separate transmission outside the scriptures, not relying on words and letters. A quote, supposedly from Bodhidharma, our Zen founder. But then you look in the Zen canon and they have these, you know, the, the Chiantai school and the Huayan school, these very wordy, kind of more scholastic forms of Buddhism. But the Zen um, section of the canon is longer than all of them in terms of num words. <laughs> There's so many words in Zen um, and all of Buddhism trying to convey something that can't really be conveyed in words. So, um, so my experience is that um, it's hard, but uh, I love trying. And based on, on, the, on the tradition of these ancestors that, that, that did such a good job, I think, of meditating and verifying reality in their experience and trying to convey something in words or gestures or symbols or art uh, in many ways besides words, but uh, words are, are a big one. They're pointers, right? They're, the Buddha said they're like fingers pointing to the moon. So oh. you can have a lot of words this week. I really and appreciate making this effort. I, I think that sometimes, you know, one way that we use the words is that they kind of become a template that we try to put on top of our experience and, and the template chops off, you know, and lim limits it. So I'm just feeling very aware of that tendency to use them as a, a way to judge our experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a way to judge our experience or even just a way to um, maybe like uh, interpret our experience. It doesn't quite line up completely, which is why it's good to get familiar with lots of different Angles and lots of, lots of different words. So it's why it's nice here. I always like when studying Dogen, you know, we'll start with the, the early Buddhist tradition of like how they use these words and see how they evolve. So we don't just have a one little window into samadhi, for example. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. Anybody else about um, Samadhi? Choro. Thank you, Kokyo. Thank you for offering this teaching. Um, and going back to basics today, um, I really appreciated your uh, you know, unpacking Samadhi and this question of one-pointedness. Um, over a kind of broader unification 
you know, notion. That was very helpful. Um, and also not being able to separate samadhi from prajna, that, you know, also helpful, this idea of, um, you know, function and <clears throat> um, I guess the question I have is, I never really thought about the pairing of samadhi and prajna, but often in Zen, we hear about the pairing of prajna and compassion. And it seemed like you, you were touching on that um, when you just now were talking about words, how it's so hard to use words about these things. And yet the Buddha tried, you know, he got up from under the tree and taught for the rest of his life out of compassion. So can you say something about is there some kind of triad here? <laughs> is compassion a function yeah. of samadhi? Are they inseparable? Yeah, what comes to mind is, as, a, um, as a triad is going back to the early teaching over and over again, shila, samadhi, and prajna. Shila is a little different from compassion or karuna, but uh, very similar in the sense of um, the relational how we how we meet others in this um, apparent world um, with kindness and um, care and uh, so that's one way of, of bringing it in that's that's good to to bring in because if you just have samadhi and prajna we might feel like well this is all just about some inner realm of insight and what about um, you know, what about compassion so that's why the, the triad of Sheila, Samadhi, Prajna is very nice. And also, you know, as I mentioned, Sheila is like um, a way to develop Samadhi um, based on non-regret, which is, this is in the Visuddhi Maga. I was kind of surprised to see, well, why is Sheila the basis of Samadhi? It's not so much saying, well, we really should be good to people. It's just saying for developing your own concentration, you should, um, take care of your relationship with people so that you, so your mind isn't churned up when you meditate. I was surprised when I first found that. But, um, but I think of course, also that it's not linear. They're like the triad is, you could say like a loop or, or one round of they all go together. But even if you see like a, a loop that keeps going, you could say the based on Sheila is we develop presence of mind based on presence of mind we can understand more based on our understanding we develop shila or ethics or um, virtue more deeply based on the understanding of particularly non-duality we could say that we naturally want to take care of others more based on that deepen um virtue our samadhi deepens and so this you can keep going around in a loop an ever deepening loop or just the three aspects of the one reality and i think we could substitute compassion here for uh for so shiva this is a function of of uh, clarity clarifying how things really are yeah by clarifying how things are compassion naturally flows forth and even like mahayana buddhism Again, it's like it goes both ways, right? You have these six paramitas. It's like generosity 
and virtue and patience are these kind of relational practices that come sort of at the beginning of the list. And then, um, and then we develop dhyana and prajna. Uh, and then, um, but then like skillful means and great compassion in the Mahayana is usually almost like a, uh, comes forth from the wisdom, from the understanding. We don't need to get too linear, I think they all, they all work together. Thank you, that, that works for me. <laughs> Ken. Yes, hi, thank you. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit more about um, Samadhi is always available. Sounds uh, very familiar in, in Advaita, kind of Advaita ways. Um, and you mentioned presence as the word that interests you and Samadhi as presence. And so um, that angle seems um, a little, a little um, aside from kind of traditional um, perspectives. Can you just say a little bit more of that, about that? Yes. Uh, yeah, I think you're right that the tradition, it looks like the old, the old at least Theravada tradition, is really, a, things are a little more formulaic in general. It's step by step. We, um, we have a really distracted mind, really are distracted. And then we start focusing on an object and the mind starts collecting and gathering and becoming less distracted. But it really was distracted before. And now through this method, we've like, um, we've overcome the distracted mind and developed the samadhi mind. That's the kind of early model. It's kind of dualistic and it's kind of like, a, uh, some truth to it practically, I think, but it's, it's, um, step by step, whereas, yeah, this more non-dual perspective is that there's, that there's uh, unification is always present and we can always find it. It's always available, as you say. Uh, I think it's, um, so it might feel like the same thing that we're, we're starting to focus on the, on the breath or something. And we start to, now I feel really actually unified and I, I was so distracted before. But is that unification something new that we created through our method? Or is it actually, was the unification already there? It was just covered by, um, by this display of like wild thoughts of past and present and turbulence. Um, mental activity that there was always the presences can't be lost but it can be um it can be like covered or, or obscured yeah they, i think obscured is a nice word to use for this that, that um presence of um unified awareness is always the case, but it's temporarily obscured by distract, what we call distractions, which are just um, getting involved in thinking that there's something other than presence. That would be one way to look at it. And uh, yet this, in the more non-dual view, what is this presence or 
maybe what the six ancestors calling samadhi. We can also, um, in the Mahayana and Zen tradition, we can start talking about the same um, unified presence as Buddha nature. Mm. I feel like I say that to a um, Theravadan practitioner. Some of them might be like, what are you talking about? That's just like a meditation state that we're cultivating to, um, to develop understanding. Buddha nature, ever-present Buddha nature. But that's how the tradition evolves in the non-dual, um, ever-present awareness is always available and always the case. It's not like it's available kind of hidden in like the recesses of the mind and we have to kind of like bring it out not even like that. That would still be like available, but um, but uh, something we have to bring forth. It's already here, complete this, in this non-dual vision. It doesn't need to be brought out. It's just that the obscurations that seem to veil it, seem to hide it, um, need to be worked with, attended to. The obscurations basically being um, thinking that there's um, something other than this ever-present, uh, all-pervading, unified, all-inclusive awareness. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, again, going back to um, these different types of meditation, I find it helpful to, to look at kind of three sort of broad um, types of meditation. And you could say maybe there's lots more, but they might be able to fit into these three. You can think about your meditation and see um, how it might fit. I like to think of it as like this, and they're all like versions of samadhi, you could say. One is this single pointed focus on a particular object, um, like the breath is the most popular, maybe in most schools of Buddhism in modern times, it's a good one. It's basically an aspect of body awareness that's a spe specific area of the body, either the nose dip or the lower abdomen generally, and uh, focusing the mind on this object and developing a kind of one-pointed concentration, which is a kind of unification of mind. And it can be that the that the mind and that object um, become unified at that point. That's one type of meditation intention. The second type is, um, is still the mind being directed, um, focusing on objects, but letting almost like the dominant object in our experience become the focus. 
So this is a little less, um, a little less reined in than focusing on the breath at this particular point. This would be like, um, we're just, we're sitting in the present and maybe we are at the bottom line of our breath, but like a sound comes and we like let our um, focus move to this, the sound becomes more dominant than the breath. And we let our attention move to the sound as the object instead of the breath. If we're really focused, trying to focus on the breath, it's almost like um, we might not, we might not um, block out the sound, but we're just, the sounds in the background to focus on the breath. That's the intention of the first type. The second type is letting the mind um, go to the dominant experience. It's still an object of mind, but um, uh, we're, letting, we're letting it move from one to another. And uh, this would be my understanding of, of this term, choiceless awareness. We're not choosing which object to attend to. Uh, we're letting the mind go to the, maybe the dominant one, but, but it's still the intention is to stay present we're, we're trying not to get into the objects of like thoughts about my vacation last year. You know, that doesn't count. We're, we're talking about present experiences. And we're, but we're let, we're, we have a more, a broader approach here. Um, mind focusing on um, the whole, maybe even the whole field of experiences. There could be sound happening and knee pain at the same time. And we're kind of like including both in this wider field than the specific point of the breath. It's a little bit wider, but it's still a mind um, attending to objects. Just the, the ob or you could say the object has expanded from the single point in the abdomen to include multiple senses like sounds and sensations and sights even. Some people might call this um, Gikantaza, not sure. People call lots of things shikantaza, so I'm not sure about that. But uh, anyway, you can probably see the difference between these two. There's a third type, which would be um, attending to the mind itself. You could say the object. It's like the mind attending to the mind is from the very beginning is not subject-object relationship. It's like letting um, awareness settle into itself. Being aware of being aware is um, from the very beginning, it's not divided into subject and object. If we start to feel, because we're so used to the subject-object way of experiencing, at first, we might say, okay, I'm going to like direct my mind towards my mind and look for it as a kind of object. That's frustrating and impossible. So it's more like just settling back into just being awareness. It's not focused on any object, not even focused on the, on the field of experience. So this would sound like, aren't, aren't the second one and the third one the same here? But see if you can see the distinction. One is attending to all, um, you know, the whole field of objective experience, sight, sound, sensations, and so on. The third is um, not attending to the sight, sounds, and sensations, 
but to awareness itself. And this doesn't mean that sight, sounds, and sensations stop. It's more like the, the intention is to just be the awareness itself. And the sight, sounds, and sensations, the field of objects, is a little bit more like in the background because we're attending to awareness itself. Whereas in the second type of meditation, attending to this field of experience, awareness is always present in the background. This is what... This is what we're, Ken was bringing up. It's always present, but we're not attend. If we're attending to the sights and the sounds and sensations, we're not really. We might not even notice that awareness is present. But of course, it must be because that's what's attending. So, um, so, so three. Can you see these three types of meditation? I think it's helpful to distinguish them. Now, can we mix them? I kind of feel like there's three different types and it's good to have a meditation intention and not mix it up. Be clear about what we're at least trying to do. Um, maybe you could say a fourth type is don't do anything at all. Just like, just be. And then, then I would say that that would be um, generally fall into just letting the mind wander where which is just, kind of called daydream or if we're really present maybe it, it does settle into either number two or number three it could be that we just we're really letting every, everything be is actually what we're doing is attending to the field of, of ever-changing experience or we're actually settling into just awareness itself i think it's good to make the distinction decide which one we want to practice know that they're all related, but somewhat different, and uh, explore the differences. Let's see, ties on. So <clears throat> we chant every morning a rope chant that goes uh, that there is a, a field far beyond form and emptiness. So the great robe of liberation, which I, I assume is a metaphor as much as it is a literal, the great robe of liberation, a field far beyond form and emptiness. Which one would you say, which of those uh, categories of meditation would you say that that falls into? Could be all three, but um, I think it, that um, saying kind of lends itself to um, maybe more like the second type in a way. Um, I think the second or the third, because we're I'm imagining a vast field here, not a specific single point, but a vast field. And in the second type of meditation, we're attending to objects. Um, uh, which is like form. We're tending to sights, sounds, and sensations, the field of sights, of all sights, sounds, which are the dominant ones. We're letting the mind um, attend to whatever the experience is, experience of form. I would say form here meaning like um, exper any experience, 
any like thing that appears in the realm of experience is I think um, shorthand for that is form when we're talking about form and emptiness and then uh, emptiness maybe we'd say emptiness is like um, kind of the third type of meditation actually where it's like this mind this this um, ever-present mind is completely empty of any graphable qualities it's not an experience it's not coming and going it can be grasped in any possible way awareness itself buddha nature is empty of anything other than itself and empty of being able to be grasped so we could say that really beyond form the field beyond form is kind of the third type of meditation being awareness itself the um, field far beyond emptiness is the second type of meditation where it's um it's not just like that there's nothing happening at all. There's a lot happening and we're attending to the field of sight and sounds and sensations. So maybe the combination of those two, maybe this is a, an example of like combining those two types of meditation uh, is the field far beyond form and emptiness. We're aware of awareness that's always present and we're aware that it's manifesting or displaying itself as the field of sight, sounds, and sensations. And that, um, that beyond being um, stuck in either sight, sounds, sensations, we call it form, or being stuck in some vacant kind of awareness that doesn't manifest as experience without being stuck in either one of those, we um, wear this robe of liberation. Thanks for that. That's a, that's a, that's a nice way to bring out the relationship between uh, these two types of Zazen. So um, maybe it's a good time to stop and uh, settle. I think that's in a, this, let's say this um, character Joe for Samadhi, it means like fixed or settled. We can, um, we can uh, settle here and stop anything other than this. May our intention equally extend to every being. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.